TFS, episode number 47. Hi, this is Martin Woodward. This is Greg Duncan. Mickey Gousset. And Paul Hacker. Hey, everybody. Well, we've got a special show coming up today. We've got our good friend and friend of a show, uh, Brian Keller, coming up for an interview. But first of all, I thought it'd be good if we um, just did a little bit of news. It, as I say, every time we're on the show, there's it, just always something new to talk about uh, on <laughs> TFS Preview, which is pretty cool. So Brian Harry did um, a blog post. If you go to tinyurl.com slash tfscadence, he's actually blogged about the cadence with which we're shipping not just um, Team Foundation Server and, and updates to the TFS preview, but also what our plans are for shipping you know, visual, updates to Visual Studio 2012 now that it's been released. So it's worth, worth going along. And I think listeners of the podcast, I think we've probably covered a lot of this before. It's really <laughs> ship updates as, as often as we can um, and, and TFS preview gets updated all the time but we're also going to wrap package up that goodness and, and, and package it up into an update for the on-premise team foundation server when it makes sense is the is the official word it looks like now so there we go yeah it's good to see that in writing from uh, Mr. Harry you know we've talked about that before and you've seen it before and we all know that Team Foundation Service team does those three week sprints, but seeing it in that post and seeing the you know the Visual Studio client is going to get updates quarterly again, seeing that posted that, that's that was interesting news. Yeah, just have to let's just follow up our words with our actions, you know, and get those up. <laughs> so, be good. One of the things I wanted to mention in the last we we did an update. Um, just uh, it was Monday actually. We did a deployment. Um, just the Monday before the recording of this show. If you go to um, tinyurl.com slash TFS1208, that's for 2012, you know, August 20th in English, the, um, we, we did a, a, service, a new service deployment. As usual, there's a bunch of back-end stuff went up there, but of particular interest, um, and if you have a look, there's a, there's a whole new um, code viewing experience with syntax highlighting and find. Have you had a chance to play this yet, anyone? No. Oh man, it's awesome! And <laughs> out that not only is it like the most amazingest you know code viewer you've ever seen, that also does diffing and stuff like that. It all, all the syntax highlighting and stuff that all works for Java as well on day one. Oh. I'm just saying. Oh <laughs> wow! I'm looking at some of the screenshots off of that tiny URL, and this looks cool insignificant investment there was you know there's a lot of work in there and it does some cool stuff it's like regular expressions when you're searching in the code there's um there's just all sorts there's all sorts now, of stuff enabled yet as well it's really really good now how does this relate back to the like viewer and, and diff that's in the that's in the like the 2012 visual studio product itself is it is it a similar view because i haven't really used that one much yet it's um it's a similar view to what's in Visual Studio, but it says different. Um, it's a different one in the web interface, but it's uh, much more enhanced than the one that was in the web interface that shipped with TFS 2012 in the box. So that's gotcha. it'll be really cool to get wrapped up and packaged in. Uh, awesome. And then another, just quickly again before we before we get onto the meat of the show, because um, it's it's pop it's close to my heart. Um, we would. Um, basic authentication on the service. So current, you know, when you try and authenticate with TFS Preview today and and forever, when you go to authenticate, it pops up a little web browser dialog that's that gets you to log in. You know, using your live ID and then um, 
And then you type in your live ID, and as far as you're concerned, you're logged in then. But what actually happens is behind the scenes, you know, you get a bunch of, you might hear about 20 clicks in the browser before it closes. And that's that's it bouncing around and doing some what, what we call federated authentication. So TFS Preview actually asks live, you know, please authenticate this person live. You you give your password to live, and then live sends TFS Preview back a message saying, hey, yeah, yeah this is really Martin, let him in. Well, that browser-based authentication that works great when you've got a browser to authenticate and enables us to do all sorts of things later and means that we don't have to store passwords, which is good as well. But the um, the downside of it is it doesn't work very well from the command line on, say, a Unix machine or a, you know on the Mac or something crazy like that. Cause, um, or if, if you're telneted or SSH'd over to, say, some Solaris machine somewhere, you, know, you don't have a browser to pop up to actually authenticate you with. So uh, what... What we've done is we've enabled, uh, if you go to your profile on TFS Preview, you can actually go in and switch on basic authentication. Now, this only works with clients that are coded to be able to use the API that, that, that uses this particular, you know, password. It's not, um, it doesn't, if you enable it, you can't then all of a sudden just not have to get that browser pop-up inside Visual Studio anymore or inside anything else anymore. All those things still go down the federated authentication if possible because that's better, you know, and it means it's all associated with your live ID. But if you want, you can go to the profile. You can set a password to use against your email address, and then you can use um, a command line application such as um, uh, uh, the, the Team Explorers Everywhere, you know, command line client, um, and use that username and password you've just set up there in your profile to, to actually authenticate. Or you can use, you know, we talked about the Git TF tool we released uh, last in last week's show. You can also um, use that to authenticate into TFS. So it's handy if you need it, but if you don't need it, don't bother switching it on is probably what I'm saying. Another, fe- another thing that uh, it wasn't covered in the post that it might be useful for you is if you're trying to do um, API work against TFS. And you know you're wanting to write some pro, you know you're wanting to code some API stuff that talks to TFS as you. Then if you were to set a password up for you, then it would be easier to it'd be easier to write that API code as well because you can just you know embed the username and password in your code and stuff. So, yep, that exists, and we're going to be iterating. You know, as we talked about um, last week, and as Brian also covered in his posts, we're we're iterating on a bunch of these features. So this is just the first version of this particular feature and we're going to keep on iterating over it and increasing the features on it and opening up things like OAuth and, you know, doing a bunch of stuff where we can to try and make it easier to easier to get into TFS but also keep it still secure. Anything else you wanted to cover, Greg, before we get into the... Yeah, well, it only kind of makes sense to uh, uh, talk about uh, this news item. There's a Visual Studio 2012 Application Lifecycle Management Virtual Machine and Hands-On Labs and Demo Scripts post. Uh, This is a series of VMs created by the one and only Brian Keller, our guest today. And... uh, you know, he's been updating these for forever. It's kind of weird talking about you like this, Brian, and that yeah, you're back there in the background. But uh, uh, Brian's been working on these for forever. He's had them in, with previous versions. Uh, he's updated them for 2012. And, you know, it's not just the VMs. If you want to start playing with Visual Studio 2012 or and or Team Foundation Server 2012, RTM versions, or SharePoint 2010, or Project 2010, or Office 2010, or SQL Server 2008 R2, uh, the, the, these Hyper-V virtual machines are what you want. 
it's everything all installed, all configured, all ready for you to start using, all in a VM. And not only do you get all that stuff, but you get the 20 hands-on labs that talk about the new features in 2012, um, like uh, code analysis, clone, you know, code clone analysis in 2012, um, the features of making uh, developers more productive, the new agile project management, the new stuff that's in 2012. There's also been a number of labs upgraded from Visual Studio 2010. So if you are, uh, if you've got a Hyper-V compatible uh, server, uh, that's Windows Server 2012, X64, uh, Windows 8, and, and Brian's got a couple notes in there about if you're a Windows 8 or a Server 2012 user. Uh, but, you know, download these. He's even included, uh, you know, uh, free download manager quick Links, you know, copy these, paste them in the free download manager. Uh, come back in a little while, and you've got a, you've got your VMs. And speaking of Brian, yeah, let's bring Brian onto the show. So uh, Brian's a principal technology evangelist for Microsoft, specializing in Visual Studio and application lifecycle management. As you probably know, he's presented at conferences all over the world. Some of you probably seen him at TechEd and things like that. And he manages several of the early adopter programs for um, emerging technologies inside Microsoft. Brian, you might have seen him on as a regular personality on the uh, Channel 9 website. Uh, this Week in Channel 9 is the co-host of that, which I've, I've appeared on with, with Brian, and Greg's been on that show, I think, before now. And uh, Mickey's also been a co-author with Brian on the Professional Application Lifecycle Management uh, with Visual Studio 2010 books, and I've had the pleasure of working with him for a long time on, on both uh, the ALM uh, with Visual Studio 2012, the ALM with Visual Studio 2010, and uh, Professional Team Foundation Server 2010 and 2012 as well. So, hey, Brian, welcome to the show. It's a long, we should have had you on a long time ago. Thanks, thanks for having me. Good morning, afternoon, and evening, everyone. <laughs> so, Brian, what we were thinking of doing is, is bringing you on, and it's, uh, we don't want to necessarily have an interview. We want to have a conversation. We want to have a conversation about TFS, about Visual Studio 2012, about ALM, and kind of like just pick your brains for the top five or ten things that, that you personally, you know, we're not, we're not looking for a Microsoft spokesman or a, a technical evangelist, but what, but what do you, you know, you're in there a lot. What do you think is cool and that maybe not getting as much airplay um, as you would have expected. You know, we all create these new features that we think are the coolest things in sliced bread, but they just don't get as much hype as you would expect. So uh, that's kind of where we want to start. And um, if we go off the rails from there, well, then that's Radio TFS. <laughs> that's <what we> did. <laughs> well, that's, that sounds good, Greg. I, I like that tee up because, you know, you, there are so many different areas of – TFS and Visual Studio that uh, that that may be new to folks and um, and you know I know you guys have talked a lot about things like local workspaces in the past which of course are near and dear to any developer's heart as they try to work with their source code in TFS but there's a lot of other things out there that that um, that I get excited about when I look at tearing down the historical boundaries that might exist between a group of developers and say their stakeholders that they're getting requirements from or they're getting feedback from about what they're building. And so 
I get really excited when I look at the possibilities for things like the PowerPoint storyboarding tool, which allows me to rapidly uh, prototype is probably not the best word, but you know, storyboard my application and try to make sure I understand what my what my customers want me to build before I start building it. Wouldn't that be nice <laughs> once in a while? <laughs> and then uh, and then and then also uh, the the feedback client. Have you guys played with that much? No, I know I've not. I've seen it mentioned, but I've not uh, played with it as much yet. Yeah, the feedback client is really great because, you know, you're down in California and Martin's over in Northern Ireland and Mickey's down in Mississippi. And, and you know, we can all jump on a Skype call like this and, and have a conversation when we want to talk about things. But really, I want to be able to get feedback from you guys about the software that I'm building anytime. And, uh, you know, when we can't always be in the same location or we can't always be looking at the application together at the same time, the next best thing is to start taking advantage of the feedback client. And the way that works is it's a two-step process generally where, first of all, my request originates from TFS where I say, okay, Greg, I've got a a build that I'm ready for you to try out. And here, here are the three or five things that I want you to take a look at and give me feedback on. And as part of that request, I might include a link to a staging server or a link to a click once executable that you might run and deploy a test build with. And then you're going to get that as an email And you're going to open up that email and it's going to say, okay, Brian would like your feedback. Click this link when you're ready. And if you don't already have the feedback client installed, you can install that. It's just a two-minute download and you're ready to go. And so once you click that link, it's going to open up the feedback client, and then we're going to capture everything that you're doing that you want to share with us uh, as you use that application. So that could be as basic as just taking some you know, text notes as you go. It could be as complex as capturing your video and your audio recording as you're using the application. And you know, I often joke that you know, there's no better way to get a bug fixed than to actually have a user cursing at your application. <laughs> when it's uh, when it's kind of crashing or not doing what you expect it to do, but it really is powerful when you're able to get that feedback directly from the stakeholder, and and a stakeholder could be an end user, or it could be a lawyer who has to make sure that your application meets certain privacy requirements or or whatever you know kind of regulations you have to meet. It could be pers- a person paying for the application, even if they may or not be um, an end user of the application. And then once once you kind of capture that feedback and save it, it automatically goes up to TFS, where now as a product owner or somebody who's looking at my TFS instance on the development side, I get to decide what, what I want to do with that. And it might mean creating a new bug. It might mean creating a new requirement. And then when the developer gets that bug or requirement, they've got everything they need at their fingertips in the user's own words that they need to know about in order to fix or implement that new feature. So to do this, though, as the end user, I don't have to have Visual Studio or Test Manager or any of of that stuff. It's going to just prompt me to install this little app or whatever to then be able to gather my feedback from me, but I don't have to have the, the huge Visual Studio client installed on my machine. 
Yeah, that's a great point, Mickey. In fact, you don't even need to have a Team Foundation server client access license. So it's completely free. If you're if you're rolling this out to 10 stakeholders or 10,000 stakeholders, uh, you don't have to give a dime to, to Microsoft beyond what you've already paid for the Team Foundation server. The only exception to that is on the requesting side. When I actually formulate my request as a, a product owner, for example, I do have to have Visual Studio Premium, Ultimate, or test professional in order to do that. Um, but uh, to give feedback is completely free. And you can also give feedback in an unstructured format where there's not a, a request first that initiates that. Sweet. And we've actually got a tinyurl.com if you want to get more information on the, the feedback tool. There's a great tutorial that you can find at tinyurl.com slash feedback client. I will say the one tip to think about is that if your end users do not have, or the stakeholders rather, do not have administrative rights on their machines, then you'll either need to make sure that you deploy the feedback client on their machines for them, maybe as part of a a rollout across your enterprise, uh, or the alternative that I've seen some customers start to do is to set up remote desktop instances that they can remote into that already have the test software stage that they can start working with and provide them with instructions of how to launch the feedback client from within that remote virtual machine or physical machine. So there's a couple of workarounds uh, that, uh, that you, can, you can use. So, um, Brian, how does the, the feedback client relate to the Microsoft Test Manager? Are, are they related in any way, not connected at all? Yeah, that's a good question. If you looked at early builds of Visual Studio, well, I guess we called it Visual Studio V Next back then, uh, you would have actually seen that the two were, were almost identical in terms of the features we exposed. And, um, and, and over time, the way that that uh, feedback client has evolved is is really with an emphasis on the non-technical stakeholder. So you don't have to, you know, be technically savvy to know exactly what you're doing with the stakeholder client. It's 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 easy enough that that hopefully someone like you know my mom could pick it up and understand what she's doing there to give feedback. Uh, under the hood, they're actually based on a lot of shared code when it comes to being able to capture those things like the screen recordings and be able to capture uh, like the text annotations that you can with an exploratory testing session, which I'd like to talk about maybe in a few minutes. But, uh, but they're really two separate experiences. And uh, the Microsoft Test Manager is still targeted at people who are actually, uh, well, testing the application and, and being able to run through test cases and identify bugs or identify areas uh, that maybe you know they think that users might be confused. Whereas the feedback client, uh, when you're taking that that uh, feedback session and, and providing your feedback as a as a stakeholder, you don't necessarily know if what you're reporting is a bug or if it's a feature request. Or I should say, you don't need to know. You're just providing your input into the process, and then it's up to the development team to decide what do we actually do with that feedback. And so you won't see the concept, for example, of filing a bug from within the feedback client uh, because it's all at the end of the day just feedback that the that the the development team can then decompose into um, bugs or requirements or a polite, thanks for your feedback, but we're not going to do anything with it. Nice. Well, this is Paul. Hi, Brian. Glad you're on today. Um, Hi, you know, it's early in the morning for you. Um, can you explain a little about, about the exploratory testing and, and then how, how that's supported with Visual Studio 2012? 
Yeah, uh, I, I love our testing story. I, I've, I've been uh, kind of evangelizing our testing story since before we shipped 2010. And uh, most folks out there might know by now that, that Microsoft has a set of tools that are targeted at manual testers. If you take a look at, at most organizations, about 70% of the testing work that takes place is still manual testing. And I think that's the reality that we'll be stuck with forever, just because we would like to automate more things. But when your application is undergoing a lot of churn, especially early on, it doesn't make sense to invest in in writing automated tests. And even if you could, manual testers can, you know, let's face it, they can look at a screen and detect bugs that you may not even think to write an automated test for. And so we came out with this tool, Microsoft Test Manager, that um, that was introduced in 2010, and it's really the, the dedicated tool that testers can use to track all of their test cases, to run those test cases, and all of the results, of course, get stored in TFS in the back end, where developers can then work side-by-side, side, if you will, with testers, and when a tester finds a bug, it can capture what we like to call rich actionable bugs for the developer that already include things like video recordings and IntelliTrace files and event logs and so on and so forth. So all that to say, that is an introduction to uh, what we uh, like to call formal test case management, which was the approach we focused on in 2010, where you write a test case and you run that test case and you do that on a repeatable basis every day or every week based on new builds that are coming out. Now, that's, that continues to be a popular approach, but there's this other type of testing known as exploratory testing or agile testing, which is starting to get more momentum out there in the industry. And uh, with that approach, you don't necessarily start with a test case. You might have a general sense of what kind of theme you want to go uh, do some exploratory testing around. So the two examples I use are, um, I'll pick on my mom again. My mom is terrified of buying anything online. She, she, she's of the generation that thinks that, you know, you should, you should not give other people your credit card. And I think there's something to be said for that. But if you're Amazon.com and you're trying to appeal to my mom, you might go through and test your website to make sure that on every single page, there's a privacy policy that explains what they do or don't do with your credit card. Or you might want to make sure that on every single page of your website, there's a phone number. So if at any given point, she didn't want to give her credit card over the internet, she could pick up the phone and say, here's what I would like to order. Now, it doesn't make a lot of sense as a test team to write a test case to say, okay, make sure the privacy policy exists on this page or on that page or on this page or make sure the phone number exists here and there and here. So what a lot of teams will do is they'll just put on their tester hat and they'll say, okay, if I was you know, this persona of user, how would I like to interact with the software and what might I consider to be a bug? Now, one of the challenges with that approach is that historically, exploratory testing tends to generate poor bugs. One of the reasons for that is that if you get in and start just hammering on the application, you may not exactly remember what you were doing two minutes ago, which led up to you experiencing this null reference exception. Another criticism is that we don't necessarily, as a manager, know what Martin was doing the last two days as he was doing exploratory testing. It's hard for me to track that he spent two hours on, you know, pretending he was Brian's mom trying to find these types of, of, of bugs. And so what we've done is we've, we've actually embraced this approach with Microsoft Test Manager, and you can 
run your exploratory testing and still generate those rich actionable bugs because what we do is we actually turn on all of those data diagnostic adapters such as the video recording or the IntelliTrace or the event logs and any number of about a dozen that you can turn on and you can create your own so that when you're in your 45-minute testing session and you find a bug, you've already got the video recording that can remind you of what you did two minutes ago leading up to that bug. The other thing you can do is is if you're using an application that supports any of the accessibility hooks like a web application or a Windows Forms or WPF application, then we can actually track your actions. So the tester, click this button, type this text, press enter, and then click that button. You can track all of that in the action recording so that you can then turn that exploratory testing session into a formal test case. And so now what you're doing is you're going through in your exploratory testing and you're not finding just bugs, but you're capturing those test cases so that you can find the bug, fix the bug, and then in the future make sure that you rerun that test case so that you don't have a regression. And so with our model with Microsoft Test Manager 2012 uh, and TFS 2012 on the back end, which facilitates this, you really get the best of both worlds here because you can use formal testing, you can use exploratory testing, and the exploratory testing actually helps you create a longer and longer list of formal test cases that you can track and test moving forward. So that, that's one of those examples. I, I hope it made sense. If, if, if it doesn't, uh, check out some of my tech guide sessions because I show some examples of this in video. Uh, but that's one of the things that I'm most excited about, and I'm seeing a lot of customers start to embrace that approach. Awesome. Thanks so much for that. That was a great explanation. Thanks. Well, it's that time of the show. Episode number 47 of Radio TFS is brought to you by SAS Made Easy, a leader in hosted TFS, dedicated virtual servers, and TFS ALM consulting. You can reach them at www.sasmadeeasy.com. That is www.sasmadeeasy.com or at sales at sasmadeeasy.com. Now, back to the show. So I'd like to follow up with that um, testing thing a little bit here, Brian. I was just on site with a customer, and they do – their QA department does uh, unit testing on the um, stored procedures. They don't really do manual testing on a front end of an application. They exercise the stored procedures. So my question is this. is Will there ever be an instance where the test case work item will actually allow you to add test cases – um, without MTM installed, because right now they have MTM installed just to write test cases um, and store those so they can then go in and do their uh, actual testing against these stored procedures. And I was just curious if that would ever work that way. Uh you know, I'm, I'm probably not the best person to, to to answer that in terms of the roadmap. I know it's a request that we get, and 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 uh, and you're right, it is. For customers that are taking that approach, it is a little bit cumbersome to have to bounce back and forth between those tools. Um, but I would, uh, I guess, I'd say that is excellent feedback. I will make sure it's addressed <laughs> on our backlog. <laughs> wow. Thanks, Brian. <laughs> so I've got one last thing about exploratory testing, which which I think you've really you covered, you talked on, but I just want to reemphasize because it's something I've encountered when teaching classes on on TFS and testing and whatnot is that a lot of people are hesitant about the exploratory testing because of the fact that the point you made out how do i know that you what you did over the past three hours and they want a more they want a more solid standard formal 
process around their testing. But I think once you start showing them the tool and you start showing them the fact that it captures all these steps and look, it actually puts them in the in the in the test case for you and builds a test case for you. That's really starts to, in my mind, to become part of the selling point to allow more of this slightly more free form, you know, drilling down, you know, testing to try to find what ultimately needs to be tested in more detail later on. So. I totally agree. Yeah, absolutely. I think that story resonates really well uh, with with both the testers and the managers. And how often is that something that happens, right? Where both the the uh, the management and and the people doing the work are happy. But really, it it is because as a as a tester, I can just get in there and do what I do best, which is you know try to trust test the application and try to break the application and find bugs. And I don't have to be bogged down by you know investing the time to write these formal test cases up front. And as a manager. I still get to benefit from having the insight into what did my testers spend the last two or three days doing. So I think it really is the best of both worlds. And, and um, you know, it's, it's a shame on a podcast. We can't do a demo. Uh, but I think once people invest the time to go take a look at maybe the virtual machine, and I've got a couple of hands-on labs that go into uh, this level of detail, they can really see the, the magic for themselves. So... Um, Brian, one of the things that we don't talk about enough here on Radio TFS is the lab management feature. Um, what's new in uh, TFS or VS2012 uh, related to lab management? I'm really glad you asked, Greg. I love lab management. This is uh, – I, I have to tell a story, which is maybe <laughs> – Three three and a half years ago, when when the uh, the beta of uh, TFS 2010 was just getting ready to make its way into the public light, and I was actually down in California hanging out with uh, with our friend Brian Randall, and uh, he and I had dedicated an entire week just to build TFS content together, and I stayed at his house. It was a great week, and um, and we we knew that we needed to work on this lab management thing, but we kind of didn't really know where to dig in. So, you know, day two, day three went by and finally we're like, all right, day four, we're going to roll up our sleeves and we're going to do what it takes to set up this lab management rig if it kills us. And, uh, and it almost did. Uh, you know, we uh, we probably were up until about three thirty, four o'clock in the morning, and then finally we had this breakthrough, and we had we had set up our system center virtual machine manager server and a couple of of, of VM hosts to actually run the deployed VMs against, and we created our master VM and installed all three different agents onto it, and set up the controllers that you need, the test controller, the build controller, um, set up the SC. VMM for the lab agent to talk to, got everything wired up exactly the way we needed, and then we kicked off our first build, and we kind of sat back, and we watched the virtual machine spin up, and the build get deployed, and then the coded UI test run against them, and man, we were just like kids in a candy store realizing the magic that lab management is, and just realizing that once you do invest the time to set these things up, it's 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 amazing. You can check in a, a line of code code and you can have it you know automatically kick off your build spin up your virtual machines 
run your tests, and then a few minutes later, you know whether or not you regressed any functionality without having to lift a finger to deploy your bits or to run any tests yourself. And 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 that is is really the dream that we're going through with lab management. But the reality is that that you know a lot of people aren't going to stay up until four thirty <laughs> in the morning to set up that SCVMM server. And and uh, you know if you can't in this day and age, if you can't kind of get a rapid prototype going that you can show value to your team and say this is the direction we want to invest in, um, it, it's not going to fly, right? And right. so and so we the the team. To their credit, did a lot of work uh, finishing off the 2010 release to make this stuff better, but it still wasn't good enough. And so, in 2012, um, they really revisited the the architecture and they said, you know, maybe instead of having three different agents that we install, we can consolidate that down to one. And you know, maybe rather than require you to boot into the virtual machine that's going to be part of your workflow, uh, we can just have TFS uh, install the agent into that machine and automatically configure it to talk to the test agent and, or sorry, the test controller and the build controller and so on. And then they also said, well, well what about, what if we removed this, this uh, requirement to use SCVMM at all? And that that's really where a lot of the infrastructure requirements uh, have come down because um, if you're using SCVMM, you do get a ton of benefits uh, such as the ability for TFS to automatically you know, snapshot your VM and roll it back to some known state if you need to and, and to take a snapshot of a test environment and then share that as part of your bug. But a lot of people don't necessarily need all of that. And if you just want to get started quickly with lab management, there's a new environment type in 2012 called a standard environment. And a standard environment can consist of Hyper-V virtual machines, but it doesn't have to. It could be running VirtualBox or VMware. It can also consist of physical machines as well, and, and that may be necessary, especially if you have to test uh, special types of hardware or special types of devices that, that don't work with virtualization. And with these standard environments, all you need to do is point to a running virtual machine or a running f- a physical machine, provide the credentials that that uh, that are going to be required to set up those those agents, and then you press go. We'll go configure those machines with the requisite agents on them, and then you've got an environment that can now participate in a build, deploy, test workflow. And with a standard environment, you're still expected to take care of the 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 restore of your machine to some known state that maybe has your prerequisites but doesn't have you know last night's build on it so you can install today's build on it uh, but as long as you're willing to kind of you know take care of some of those other tasks manually or, or by setting up some custom workflow tasks in the build then it's very easy for you to get started with lab management today and one of the canonical scenarios that that uh, that I like to, to to kind of evangelize it for is let's say that your primary development station is Windows 8 or Windows 7 but you write code that needs to run on Windows Server and maybe use a full-blown version of SQL Server as opposed to SQL Server Express, wouldn't it be nice if you could just have a VM that's running maybe on another core or running on a different machine under your desk and you can say at any time, 
check in the code that I'm working on, build it against uh, my team build environment, deploy it out to this virtual machine or, or even multiple virtual machines if you have an in-tier environment you want to set up. And then a few minutes later, you can come back and say, well, the code I just checked in regressed this functionality and now I'm getting an exception that I can go investigate. And, and it's really a lightweight test lab that anybody can take advantage of in a matter of minutes. That sounds awesome. Wow, that I may finally play with lab management. <laughs> <laughs> you should. So, so I got one other question for you. I want to. I want to. You know, I'm on a testing kick right now, so I'm t- going back to our little testing exploratory testing. But I just put Windows 8 on my lap on my laptop. So with with does do the testing tools and like the the exploratory testing and all that. How does that play when I'm dealing with like modern UI apps, or if I'm wanting to build like for the new Surface tablets that are coming out, or things like that? Is there any anything we need to know from that standpoint? Yeah, that's that's a great question, Mickey. So. We actually have a few different ways of, of testing applications with Microsoft Test Manager, and, and, and several of those ways uh, work with Windows 8. So one of the things that I'm excited about is you can actually be running your test case on your desktop. So let's say you've got you know Microsoft Test Manager installed and running on your traditional Windows 7 or Windows 8 desktop experience. And let's say that you want to test your application on a tablet using the full-blown touch UI. Well, we don't want to have your your test runner get in the way of that experience by having to dock that on the left side of the screen and take up 20% of the real estate. And so what we now let you do is actually run your tests and say, connect to this remote device. And that way, what we'll do is we'll bring up your test cases on your desktop machine. And then on your remote device, you can be testing the application. And as you're pinching and zooming and scrolling and tapping around and playing with your application, we'll actually track all of the actions that you're performing. And along with those actions, we introduced what's called a new rich action recording log that in addition to saying you tap this and you click this, we actually include a little screenshot of the screen at every point in that journey so that you can go back as a developer when you're reviewing a, a bug, for example, and understand exactly the navigation path that a user took in order to get to the screen that they found a bug on. And so so that's something that works really well. Um, I, I actually don't know whether or not that's going to work on the on the ARM devices. Um, that's something that I'm going to have to check with because I frankly haven't – I don't have an ARM device yet, so I haven't played with that experience. But I know for sure that it works on the x86 devices, and that's something that I've played a lot with. Um, and so that's, that's one experience. And then, of course, you know, on Windows 8, at least running on the um, x86 uh, devices, you still have desktop applications. You might still be running with WPF and Windows Forms applications, and and of course everything that uh, that you would expect to work with Microsoft Test Manager on Windows Seven would just work on Windows Eight there. Oh, let me ask you. So you mentioned this rich action log that that I get a screenshot of all my different. Is that only when I'm dealing with the the modern UI type of apps, or is that something I now get with with like when I'm working in like my WPF or my WinForm apps as well? Yeah, you know, it's funny. As soon as you show that to people, they want it for all application types, and uh, which is great. I, I, I had the same question back to the product team. And um, I would say that that is something that I expect will be coming for uh, other application types in the future. Um, one of the other areas that we actually introduced that to was coded UI tests. So you can actually go into your coded UI tests, and within the configuration now with 2012, you can enable 
those rich action recording logs as well. And so let's say that you have a coded UI test that's running on a server somewhere overnight. Well, that coded UI test might might pass just fine because all of the validation logic passed. But occasionally, you want to peek inside and, and see, okay, well, it passed, but you know maybe the screens were all upside down and backwards, or the logo was mispositioned, or something just didn't quite look right that my test wasn't validating for because it wasn't coded to validate for, but a human could take a look at it and, and see right away that that's a problem. And so that's, that's one of the other areas that we've also introduced, those rich action recording logs, and you can enable those for coded UI tests, and I would encourage people to, uh, to consider doing that because it really is a powerful experience. And, and I'm glad you like it, Mickey, because it is something that I, that I think the team will be expanding to more platforms over time. Sweet. That'll be awesome, yeah. So, uh, Brian, I got one last question for you, and this is completely off topic, but it goes back to the whole cadence thing. You do a fantastic job with these virtual machines and these hands-on labs and everything. With the cadence changing, how is that going to affect the way that you're creating these VMs for people to consume? Yeah, that's a that's a really timely question, uh, and thank. I'm glad you guys like the VM and the and the hands-on lab. It's uh, that's good feedback to keep me going. Um, so uh, so that's a good question. I was having a, a conversation with Brian Harry about this yesterday, in fact, and I said, you know, I, I think that the three months is probably going to be uh, too quick of a cadence for me, uh, just because I am a one-man team, and it takes me about a week and a half to rebuild my VM from scratch each time. I don't know if a lot of people realize that, but but uh, every time I, I work with a new build, I do have to rebuild everything from scratch and build out those work items precisely in a in a you know date chronological order so that the reports light up and that kind of thing. Um, but I said, how about how about every six months? And so that's kind of what I'm thinking of right now is that is that every six months, which would be of course two cumulative updates or quarterly updates, uh, that I would build a new VM and I might I might I might increase the cadence, I might decrease the cadence. But that's kind of what I'm thinking right now. And then for, for those of you that are advanced power users and you want to kind of go off the beaten path and install, you know, the latest and greatest power tools and the latest and greatest, uh, and, you know, quarterly update CTPs, uh, then, of course, you could take my VM and you can add to that uh, as well. So um, you don't have to wait for me to update the VM. You could just add those capabilities yourself. But, uh, but yeah, that, that, those are my thoughts. And, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a build, measure, learn process for me. So I'm sure I would love to. I uh, listen to more feedback and find out what people want me to invest in there. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks for doing that work. I really appreciate it. Great. Yes. And I think that's about a show. Uh, Brian, I really want to thank you for coming on. Um, I, I think it was great. I think our listeners will really appreciate it. Um, for them, I had forgotten to mention what the tiny URL was for your post. It's tiny URL BKVS 2012 VM. From that tiny URL, you can get to all those uh, VMs that we've been talking about, those hands-on labs that cover a uh, majority of the things that we've been talking about today. Uh, any last words, Brian? Oh, well, this is great. Time flies <laughs> when you're on the spot. <laughs> this is, uh, I didn't realize the time was up already, but thank you so much for having me. I, I love Radio TFS. You guys are doing a great job, and, and uh, we'd love to do this again sometime. Great. Well, thank you very much, Brian. Well, as we said, that's the show. Uh, we appreciate you listening. If you have any feedback for us, please send us an email at radiotfs at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail message at uh, 1-425-233-8379. And thank you all very much.